This morning we're going to spend some time looking at Joshua chapter 23, the penultimate speech of Joshua before he goes the way of all the earth. So I invite you to turn to that passage. We'll make a number of specific references to the verses. It would be good to have it before you as we consider this. But to get our minds thinking along the same lines as Joshua here, I want you to consider this. That in Europe, there are some pretty beautiful cathedrals. I don't know if you've ever traveled to Europe and seen these cathedrals, many of them very ancient buildings that are anchoring the centers of many of the town squares. The magnificent works of architecture, some of them many uh, dead, hollow museums at the same time, but nevertheless, they are beautiful, grand buildings. One scholar has said this about cathedrals. They are mammoth religious spaces designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at one time. This religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. My wife and I had the privilege of going to France about three years ago, and we saw uh, Notre Dame, and it was exactly like what this scholar has described. A lot was going on, and there were little pockets for you to get out into chapels for various things. Now, if you've never been to Europe, never fear, for you have an opportunity to see some cathedrals even in America, modern cathedrals, you might say. Now, I come from Short Hills, New Jersey. That's where I'm the assistant pastor, and we have one of these cathedrals in our very town. And just as with these modern cathedrals, or the medieval ones, the modern ones have chapels dedicated to various saints and religious activities. The one that we have in Short Hills, it has a chapel dedicated to creation in the fall, Adam and Eve. It has one, oddly enough, devoted to the patron saint of librarians. It even has one devoted to true religion. Now our scholar of cathedrals, says something about these modern ones as well. He says, unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires our desire to be imitators of these exemplars. These are ideals of perfection to which we will learn to aspire. That's what he says about these modern cathedrals. So though many will not be wealthy enough to make offerings at these cathedrals, nevertheless, there are sweet fragrances that that come from many of these chapels. But there's one great advantage to these modern cathedrals that the medieval ones don't have. It's that these modern cathedrals have uh, beautiful covered parking garages and food courts at which you can get the latest from Qdoba, maybe, or California Pizza Kitchen. I wonder if you see where I'm going with this. The modern cathedral in Short Hills, New Jersey is the Short Hills Mall, after all. It is a grand structure designed for religious worship. Now our scholar, his name is James K.A. Smith, and he's written a couple books called Desiring the Kingdom and You Are What You Love. And in these books, he's argued that shopping malls, sports stadiums, and places along those lines are places of worship, modern cathedrals, 
You see, James Smith's burden is to make us aware that there are things out there in the world that compete for our worship. They compete for the love of our hearts. What he wants us to know as he describes these modern cathedrals is that Christians can become all too familiar with the world and fall into worshiping what the culture worships. And this happens to be the same burden that Joshua has in chapter 23 as he brings together the leaders of Israel in this farewell speech. His concern is to warn the leaders of the next generation that there are things that will compete for their hearts, the love of their hearts. They need to be vigilant, lest their hearts be stolen away from loving God. Joshua's burden is relevant for us as well today. Though most of us are not in danger of clinging to idols of wood and stone, nevertheless, We need to be warned again and again of those things that will compete for the love of our hearts. So as we look at Joshua chapter 23 this morning, I want to see three things that are related to this idea of competing loves. We'll see first God's love for His people. God's love for His people. Then we'll see an exhortation to love God. An exhortation to love God. God And finally, a warning against following after competing loves. A warning against following after competing loves. With that three-point framework in your mind, let's look at the first five verses of Joshua chapter 23. And we'll see how God loved His people first. Now in these verses... These first five verses are, are Joshua essentially doing succession planning. He's bringing together the leaders of Israel because he's old and well advanced in years. He doesn't have much time left, and so he's going to pass the baton to the next generation. He calls them together to focus on the fact that because God has loved us first, we must continue loving Him. And now that is your responsibility, he tells the next generation. And though it's not apparent in the English translations that we have, the Hebrew here has a number of emphatic pronouns to highlight that the central character here in these first five verses is God himself, not Joshua and not their leaders. You see, Joshua says, I, I am old and well advanced in years. I am going the way of all the earth. I will not be here forever. You, you leaders, you know what God has done. It wasn't you. You didn't do anything. But he, that third emphatic pronoun in verses 3 and 5, he is the unchanging factor in the continued life of Israel in the promised land. And he will remain faithful to the end. You see, God first loved Israel. And that is why they are in the promised land in the first place. But not only that, God says He will continue to love and to fight for Israel. And so in this succession planning, it's focused on how God has done and is doing and will do. And that's the basis of how the mantle is passed to the next generation. Well, because we haven't been looking through Joshua here, and I'm just visiting to To preach this morning, I'll tell you that these leaders have experienced tremendous 
things. The steady love of God throughout their time in the promised land. They have seen God's love in that God has fought for them time and time again. Throughout the chapters of the book of Joshua, it declares that God will fight for His people when they are assailed by their enemies. And so on the basis of this display of love, Joshua passes the torch of leadership to them because the Lord your God will push back or drive out your enemies on account of His love for you. Take up this mantle, he says, because you have a great leader in God Himself. He first loved you. The tremendous blessing that God first loved us. And this is the centrality of the New Testament ideas as well. I want to think about this foundational quality of God's love for His people. Before there are any commands or exhortations in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, there's a declaration that God first loved His people. Before there are any imperatives to obey, there's the indicative, I love you. So the foundation upon which Joshua tells these leaders to continue following God is God's love. The foundation upon which Christians continue to obey God is because He loved us first in Christ. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be chosen in Christ Jesus? Well, the Apostle John tells us that God's choosing was a function of His loving In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. 1 John 4.9 So we're reminded that God first loved us. And it is out of this love that we heed the words of God. He has united us to Christ. He has reconciled us to Himself. He has transformed our hearts so that we are able to love Him. But without this foundation, these commands would make no sense. They would be, in fact, impossible to follow. But because God first loved us, it is good, it is right, it is proper for us to show forth our love for Him. So based on that, foundational quality of God's preceding love. Joshua continues on in his speech in chapter 23 to exhort Israel to love God because he first loved them. It's our second point in this sermon. We see this in verses 6 through 13. An exhortation to love God. As we think about this exhortation that to love God, we need to know that there are two imperatives in these verses. Verses 6 and verse, verse 11 have the, the be very strong or be very careful to keep and to do all of God's law. And then in verse 11, to be very careful to love the Lord your God. These are not two separate thoughts. It's one, one thing we need to remember. These are mutually reinforcing Concepts that drive towards the one point. Love God by keeping His commandments. Keep God's commandments and you will show that you love God. These two things reinforce 
one another and they help us to see that to love God is to be an obedient citizen in his kingdom. There's also an urgency. Not only is there a command, but there's an urgency. If you look at verse 6, Joshua says, be very strong. Verse 11, be very careful. An urgency in these commands to love God by obeying Him. He's concerned that the people of Israel would be vigilant in their love for God. The people of God have no room, wiggle room, to be slack about guarding their hearts against competing loves. This is particularly so because the words that Joshua uses here in these commands are words that are used in warfare. These are warfare words. Be strong and be careful are words used in the context of battle throughout the book of Joshua. The idea is to have great courage and to be vigilant watchmen in the midst of battle. But what's the battle? I thought in verse 1 here that Israel had rest on every side. Well, you see, there's a spiritual battle that continues to rage even as Israel has physical rest on every side. There is a rival lover who seeks to sway the affections of God's covenant people that remains in the promised land. So closely connected with these positive commands to love God by doing what He commands are negative commands related to worship and practice. If we look at verse 6 again, Israel is in, in the positive sense to keep God's law, but negatively they are not to turn to the right hand or to the left. We learn what it means to turn to the right hand and to the left in verse 7. It looks like intermarriage with the Canaanites. It looks like mentioning the names of the Canaanite gods. It looks like swearing oaths by those gods. It looks like worship by bowing down and serving those gods. In short, What it looks like to keep the straight and narrow is to stay away from corrupted worship and perverted moral practices that would be brought about by an all-too-familiar relationship with the world. That's what it looks like to love God and keep His commandments. And so these these competing loves are identified by Joshua as, as forces that are opposed to our love of God. And they highlight the urgency of clinging to God Himself. Clinging to their great God. Verse 8, the word is used to cling rather than clinging to the remnant of Canaan. So there's a a contrast that's set up. The war, in fact, is a spiritual warfare that Israel needs to be concerned to engage in on the side of God. This spiritual battle is waging for their affections. And Joshua exhorts the people of God with urgency to love God by keeping His commandments. Well, this past summer, my wife and I were down in Atlanta, Georgia for her cousin's wedding. And we 
went across town to go see some family for the afternoon. And as we were driving back across town, which takes about an hour ordinarily, to the hotel, we were caught in a pop-up thunderstorm. It was, it was a tremendous thunderstorm. I've really never seen anything like it. It was raining so hard that you really couldn't see much more than a couple feet in front of you. The water was coming down so, down so fast that the highways just could not move the water away. It was standing water on the highways. Lightning was flashing all around. It was a pretty intense experience. Let's say it was a white-knuckle ride back to the hotel for me. It took us two hours rather than one hour to get back because we were particularly vigilant of not only other drivers, but how I was driving with the water on the roads and whatnot. You see, it would have been foolish for me to drive back to the hotel without any regard for the context that I was in, without any extra precautions for the thunderstorm. It would have been foolish to just carry on with my life as if there wasn't a thunderstorm raging about me. Brothers and sisters, let's not be foolish about the war that is raging around us right now. We are not immune to the siren song of the world. And it would be foolish of us to think that we've grown beyond these basic commands to love God by doing what He commands, to keep a vigilant watch in the middle of this spiritual warfare. You know, it's interesting in verse 8, Joshua commends Israel for its faithfulness. Israel is not a wounded dog licking its wounds and and getting this, this command. It's being commended and then commanded. In the midst of faithfulness, Joshua exhorts the people to love God and keep His commandments, to be vigilant in the midst of battle. So let us also be vigilant. Let us also hear this exhortation. Though we are not of the world, we are in the world. But because we are in the world, we are constantly assaulted by competing loves. Worship of material things. Sex, money, whatever it might be. Constantly assaulting us, trying to draw us away from loving our great God. We may be faithful, but the war continues on just like it did for Israel. We need to have great courage and be very careful to love the Lord our God and to keep and to do all that He has commanded in His Word. It's precisely when we forget that we're in a battle that we're most vulnerable to these competing loves. You know, if you put your sword away in the middle of a battle, you really shouldn't be surprised if you get wounded. What does it look like? We put some practical perspective on this. What does it look like to have great courage and to be very careful to love God? I think there are offensive and defensive ways of looking at this. I think offensively, we spend regular time reading God's Word. We spend regular time praying with a healthy dose of a confession of our sins to God and clinging to Him for His great assurance of pardon. 
It looks like not, like not neglecting the gathering of God's people every week. In short, it looks like practicing the ordinary means of grace. Defensively, what does it look like? I think it, it looks like guarding our hearts. It looks like a thoughtfulness about what our eyes might see, what our ears hear, what our mind thinks, our heart would feel, and our mouth says. What it looks like to be a vigilant Christian in the midst of a spiritual battle that is raging, in fact, even now. But you may be wondering, what's at stake here? Why is it so important for us to be so vigilant? Joshua addresses that in chapter 23 as well. Joshua is so concerned in this farewell speech to exhort Israel to have great courage and to be very careful to love God and keep His commandments because Joshua knows one thing, that we become what we worship. To borrow a phrase from G.K. Beale, we become what we worship. If we worship the world, we will become like the world. And if we become like the world, Joshua says we will be judged like the world. And so to press home his point, here in the last bit of this chapter, he concludes with a solemn warning in verses 14 to 16. Let's consider our final point this morning, a warning against following after competing loves. Verses 14 to 16. I don't know what version of the English Bible you're looking at, but at least in the ESV, it begins with a clear certification of the truth. You know. You know something, leaders of Israel. You know it in your hearts and in your souls, all of you. Something great. That not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Leaders, experience of God's preceding love And his perfect preceding love is the basis on which Joshua makes his solemn warning here. Based on their experience that God is faithful to continue to love them, he then gives them this this strong warning in verses 15 and 16. He presents, in the midst of God's love, God's severity To summarize the logic of these verses, it goes something along these lines. Judgment against Israel is just as sure as God's faithfulness to Israel has been. Because there's no room for competing loves in the hearts of God's treasured possession. God has entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. Loving false gods is a breach of that covenant. And swift retribution is the penalty of that covenant. Joshua then summarizes the reason for such a severe warning when he he declares in so many words, we become what we worship. When Israel loves and worships God, she is a reflection of God's glory. But when she loves and worships the world, false gods, she reflects those blind, deaf, mute, and dumb idols that she would or might cling to. And when Israel becomes like those idols, she's no different than the nations that God has driven out. The whole point of Joshua is the giving of the land and the driving out of the Canaanites. But they will become exactly like what has just been driven out if they forget to follow after their God and to love Him and obey Him. 
There's a repetition here, even these words, good land, in verses 15 and 16. And this repetition of these, this phrase, good land, is a reminder of God's abundant blessing on Israel. In the midst of this severe warning, they're reminded again and again of that great blessing of being in the land in the first place. This land flows with milk and honey. In this land, Israel is eating vineyards and orchards that they did not plant. They are living in houses and cities that they did not build. Why? Because God first loved them and delighted to give them a good land. But a rebellious people who do not love their God and who scorn His will for their lives do not deserve this good land. That is what Joshua is reminding them. So as surely as God has been faithful to give the land, so He will be faithful to remove it. They prove to breach the covenant that He has made with them. It's important for us to remember that in the book of Joshua, Israel does some pretty boneheaded things. And they're not purged from the land. So what Joshua is describing here is not just a slip up here and there. He's describing a deep entrenched pattern of rebellion, of turning away against God, of stopping up ears to not hear God's call to his straying sheep. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love as we read from Psalm 103. As we know from the beginning of Joshua's speech here, God first loved us. As we know from verse 14, God's unchanging promises have come to pass. Nevertheless, a consistent pattern of rejecting God, of loving false gods, of turning from the living God to idols of our hearts points to a hardness of the heart of that person. And the heart and heart is cold and dead, just like the idols that are worshipped. This is a solemn warning. We can't, we can't gloss over the solemn warning that Joshua gives at the end of this passage, but we need to hear it. Though God abounds in grace and mercy, He will not suffer a fool forever. Such a word of warning is good for all of us to hear. Though it may be striking... And though we may be tempted to think that these warnings are not for us, the reality is that warning passages, not just in Joshua chapter 23, but essentially the whole book of Hebrews, are for God's people to hear. These warning passages in Scripture are helpful in spurring us on to love God and to keep His commandments. These warning passages bring to the forefront of our minds the fact that there is fundamentally something wrong in our own hearts and that we need God to move first. As the hymnist says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Certainly Israel in exile hundreds of years after this, these events that have uh, taken place here would know exactly what we're talking about. The whole narrative from Judges to 2 Kings testifies to the reality that there is something wrong with man. That only as God moves will there be salvation. 
And related to this idea is the fact that these warning passages remind us that God is in fact a just God and He will not let any sin pass. No injustice in the world or in our own hearts can be overlooked. God will and does judge the unrighteous and nobody, nobody gets a pass. That's Joshua's warning to the next generation. Just as surely as God gives good gifts, He will judge those who scorn Him as the giver of those good gifts. But what's the point of a, of a warning passage? To make us feel bad? No, the point of warning passage is to drive us to Christ. See, Joshua has already told Israel to cling to their God. Why? Because there is a penalty for your sin, and He is the only one who can satisfy that penalty. If we're left to our own devices, we will wander from God, the God who first loved us. And that wandering will lead to judgment. And that's why Joshua is concerned to point us back to God Himself. It's the only way that leads to life. This warning passage is a fitting dance partner with the exhortation to love God because it reminds us the other direction, the end point of those other directions when we don't follow the straight and narrow. Reminded of the phrase there, but for the grace of God go I. Indeed, I would go down the right hand or the left hand apart from God's grace. So it's helpful with eyes open to the reality of the sinfulness of man, of what would happen to us were we to drift from the God who first loved us. If we were to loosen our clinging grasp onto the cross of Christ, with all of that, it is helpful because we are more and more encouraged to love God and keep His commandments out of thankful acknowledgement of the mercies in our Lord Jesus Christ that He first loved us and gave us the ability to love Him and to keep His commandments. And since we do live on the resurrection side of the cross, we know with certainty that this is the only way to inherit eternal life. We know that the victory has been won by Christ and it encourages us to cling more closely to our Savior, knowing from what He has saved us from. So it's good for us to keep an eye on these warning passages in Scripture. Don't read quickly over them when you read the Bible. Marinate in them as they point you to Christ who has satisfied the penalty for your sins for your transgressions of the covenant. Let's wholeheartedly cling to Christ, brothers and sisters, having great courage and being very careful to discern the various things that compete for the love of our hearts. Let's have great courage to be very careful to look to that great and first commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you know what? It's our privilege. Because God first loved us. Please pray with me. 
Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that you have first loved us, that from the before the foundations of the world, you chose us in Christ Jesus. You sent your only Son to die for us, and you have applied this great salvation to our hearts, your Holy Spirit. We do pray that you would help us to see that you have saved us from a great peril. And would that these warning passages would push us to cling to you more tightly, knowing that there is no other way to eternal life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.